It's episode number 456, and today I chat with Cat Bishop. Let's cue that intro. The big question is this. How do we use cycling as a tool to improve our health, our happiness, and our longevity? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Anthony Walsh, and welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Roadman, welcome back to episode number 456. Roadman, just before I dive in and introduce my amazing guest today, Kat Bishop, let me just give you a quick shout out for Patreon or a slight little not so subtle push in that direction. Pause the podcast now, it takes two seconds and head on over to patreon.com forward slash Anthony underscore Walsh. There's a group among you, a very silent supportive minority among you, that choose to sponsor the podcast to the tune of a pint of beer once a month. I know it sounds tiny, it sounds almost unwilling of your time to head across there, but it makes such a difference to me and it makes such a difference to the podcast. It allows me to do what I do six days a week. So if you'd see me out and about in a pub, if you'd see me out in a coffee shop and you'd be willing to buy me a coffee or a pint of beer, please take two seconds and head on over to patreon.com forward slash Anthony underscore Walsh. I'm going to leave the link in the show notes. Honestly, it makes all the difference. You're going to absolutely love today's podcast guest. It's such an inspirational chat and it definitely isn't a fluffy conversation. It's a hard-hitting one where we clash and we challenge each other. Kat Bishop is a former British Olympic rower. She's a former world champion rower. But since retiring, she has been a strong advocate for redefining how we look at winning. She's written an amazing book called A Long Win, which I'm going to link in today's show notes, which is just roadmancycling.com slash show notes slash four five six the long win is definitely a book worth checking out but we talk in this podcast about do we need to redefine what it means to win and you look at somebody like bradley wiggins who came through the entire british cycling system and countries around the world are trying to emulate the success of britain but if we look at bradley wiggins yes he's had olympic success yes he's had world title and tour de france's And by one criteria, that is successful. That is what success looks like. But Kat is saying, no, we need to zoom out. We need to broaden what we think of as success. Because if you look at Brad, like he seems like a nice guy, but he's a thoroughly broken man. He's a product of a broken system. And he is somebody who came through from a very young age. And that system was not entirely responsible for problems in his life, but very formative in those problems. So we need to look at that. We need to learn from it and we need to do better. And I challenge Kat and I push her in a lot of places because I don't want to move to a place where we're getting medals for coming sixth place and everybody's a winner. So it's finding that balance and redefining winning, but redefining it in a way where we still hold on to what's great and what's true about competition and pushing each other and getting the best out of each other. Let me welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast, Kat Bishop. Thank you. Delighted to be here. I'm really excited to chat with this because I don't feel like this is going to be a a trivial or a throwaway conversation. I feel like we're going to actually hit some hard topics and it's going to be, we're going to get into it. You ready to go deep? I'm ready to go deep. There's one phrase that's always stuck with me through my sporting career. And so for some context, as I was in school and through university, I was a really passionate football player. And in true school, I actually always thought and assumed that I would be a pro soccer player. I got to a decent level and then it becomes this... It becomes an echo chamber as well at that age when you're 14, 15, 16, 17 because you've school managers telling you you're amazing, you've club managers telling you you're amazing, regional managers telling you you're amazing. But it never happened, but it was my early passion. And like any young athlete, you look for role models. And one of the big role models, at least in Ireland, in soccer at the time was, and I'm saying soccer to help out our American audience here because I spent some time living in the US as opposed to saying football. One of the big role models I had was Roy Keane. And I remember a phrase that stuck in my head because I had it on a poster and he said, always be happy, but never be satisfied. And I, that's a, it's a phrase that's troubled me as I've got older because it, I don't think it's a phrase that served me particularly well. It was a, It's a phrase that I remember coming back from a stage race, if we fast forward 10 years later, coming back from a stage race where I'd won the Queen's stage on stage three and stage four, I'd been in the break again and I'd sprinted, but I got second 
on the stage so I'd won the Queen stage and got second on the last stage and I remember coming home on the car journey home and hardly talking to my girlfriend on the way home because I was pissed off that I didn't win the last stage and it was in part I think shaped by this idea of an uh, idea of Roy Keane as an athlete as somebody who's never satisfied and I think I was missing the happiness in those moments chasing this idea of winning at all costs and I know it's something you've don't worry there's a question in here somewhere I, I know this is something you've wrote about this idea of how do we redefine success do we need to redefine success I suppose is the question to open so big question yeah a lot of detail in there and I really resonated with that story and I similarly feel troubled by Roy Keane's comment I understand where it's coming from and it's actually very typical of a sort of supposedly striving performance mindset but I think we're all starting to realize actually that doesn't lead you to a great place in performance terms certainly not over any sustainable period of time and it doesn't lead you to a great place in happiness terms and, and you could actually argue that the phrase in itself is contradictory yeah uh, so you know and if you follow that second bit then the first bit just drops away and the fact that you sort of end with that bit means that actually you don't mean the first bit anyway so you're not talking about being satisfied uh, being happy you're only talking about never being satisfied and actually that phrase really if we're truthful the message that's heard and sent is never be satisfied and that's a little sinister to me but actually sport is full of quite sinister phrases and there can be things that are badged as performance. I mean, I was having a discussion recently with some Australian athletes about the phrase all in. Are you all in? I can remember people saying, have you got, will you give whatever it takes to get an Olympic medal? Go, yes, yes, I've seen the movies. I know the answer. I will do anything. But of course, as soon as we go down that path, we open ourselves up to uh, all sorts of things that could get abused um, because actually maybe there are some values that should be held to and you know maybe it's not okay to do absolutely everything to damage ourselves mentally or physically in pursuit of an olympic medal maybe, maybe that's not actually the right thing to do so i think we're full sport is full of these kinds of phrases that we need to start unpicking and thinking about what is actually the impact of this not just the sort of macho uh, intention but where does it lead us i can remember very early on as well when i went from university rowing which had been fun fairly serious for that level it had you know had got into kind of different boats at a, at a, and you know got to, to a reasonably serious level where we were coached by coaches who had uh, previously coached it at a national or even olympic level so you know it wasn't it wasn't a, a kind of totally recreational level but those coaches have kept it really good fun as well and then when i started on the olympic path this language came in and coaches sort of said to me multiple said don't expect to have fun now you've got to be a serious athlete do you really want this are you prepared to be a serious athlete don't expect to be happy unless maybe you know when you can be happy it's when you're on the top step of the podium and that Roy Keane message kind of reminded me of that because that again is a I think a very di difficult and dangerous message for an athlete and it certainly led my expectations to sort of be looking for this kind of misery along the way looking for it not to be fun and thinking that you're suspending it because there's going to be this almighty moment when you win and the heavens will open and the heavenly angels will sing and everlasting happiness will occur from that moment onwards and there's a lot of athletes now being pretty vocal about the fact that that does not happen. Uh, Johnny Wilkinson is one who uh, kind of really springs to mind, who talks about how he chased cap after cap after cap, trophies, won the World Cup, uh, waiting for the joy to come. The joy didn't come. Eternal mental distress is what followed. Victoria Pendleton, you can go back to Mark Spitz winning his seven medals in 1972 and then, and then never really rebuilding his life when he realized that hero though he was, that it didn't create a life of everlasting happiness automatically. So that comment sort of really, uh, you know, resonated and made me think a lot about why I wrote the book, The Long Win, and the search for a better way to succeed. Where I struggle with this, and I, I agree with almost every single part of what you've said there, and I've been that person on the top step 
of the podium not as often though as i would have liked but i've been that person on the top step and i always at the time was looking to the next race to the next win could i have won by further even was a consideration at times so that perfect moment never exists i know the stoics call this idea of chasing material goods the hedonic treadmill that you're chasing a mirage that's always in the distance i'll be happy when i get that car i'll be happy when i get that house when i get that promotion but it, it it never comes it's always in the distance because you're not actually looking for happiness you're looking for the external validation that that milestone brings but you can't control how somebody else views you you can only control how you view yourself so getting that victory getting that car getting that job it, you can't make your parents proud you can't make your friends envious and i think that's often the unspoken target that we're aiming for yeah i i think it is it's this framing so i it's really important i'm not against trying to win i'm not against trying to excel trying to be your best trying to explore the possibilities in fact i want us to be able to explore our possibilities and i think if we reframe success we can be more ambitious because we won't be limiting it by this comparison, by just the next thing, just by this very kind of small temporary measure of success, we can start to think about it in some different ways. So I found that if we define success in a way that's just short term, it's just that race, it's just standing on top of the podium, then that's not great. We need the moment on the podium to connect to something of lasting value. We need that medal to be connected and to represent meaningfully something else that stays with us, that kind of intrinsically connects with us, a purpose, a community. If we, if we leave it at this non-human level of a round piece of metal, you know, an exam certificate, a, a, some spreadsheet, you know, your sales figures, your quarterly sales figures, then that doesn't really motivate us to be creative and resilient and explore our boundaries. It, it, we're actually kind of engaged in this slightly meaningless task that we feel trapped in, in a way. So it's not good for us health-wise, mental health-wise, but it, it's actually not good performance-wise over time either. The other thing is if success is defined purely in a comparison. So I've got to be better than you. I've got to outdo you and then that's good. But that kind of success feels very different than when success is about exploring what's possible, when I'm pushing the boundaries, when I'm not having to see your failure make me look successful. So this comparison piece, which is endemic across society, is really unhealthy. And again, it doesn't give us that real kind of intrinsic motivation. This is all very extrinsic. These are very external factors, as you mentioned. So we limit, we don't allow ourselves to use the deeper motivations that would drive us to be more creative in, in improving our performance, in exploring other possibilities. But do we need to draw a line and say, do we need to draw a line and say, there is a level of sport which we're going to call high performance and you know you can go back to gladiators fighting in roman times there has to be a winner and a loser in this type of sport that we as the public want to see you know we the danger of and while this is such a valuable conversation and it's actually why i wanted to speak to you on it because i i really think you draw a nice line between I don't think any of us as sports fans, athletes, want to move to a place where we're celebrating sixth place medals, where you go into a race and everybody's a winner. There has to be an element of, for me to win, you lose. So I don't think it's, uh, I, I mean, I, I totally agree. Uh, this isn't everyone have a medal and let's go home and not, and not try. Definitely not. That's not performance. That's going to move us on. But the sort of winner-loser thing is also a little, uh, feels a little crude a little bit uh, kind of under undermines and, and underrepresents what's going on in a race. You cannot have, if we look at an Olympic final, you cannot have the winner without those other people that we now call losers. It's because of their brilliance that they potentially push and create the circumstances for the person who ends up winning on that day to you know, bring that excellent performance. So to then dismiss what they've done, that feels wrong, inaccurate, unnecessary. And, you know, it, it doesn't, if you like, appreciate that others have to be involved in performance. Otherwise, why don't we just do it on our own? Why doesn't the best person just run? They can't break the world record unless the others are there. So why do we have to diss 
the other stories that happened in that race. Okay, somebody created and tried a really sort of crazy tactic and, and you know, that actually pushed the winner to do something and it meant that maybe that person, they just ran out at the end. But isn't that interesting? They're pushing what's the boundaries of what's possible. They enabled someone else to go even further. They found something out. They tested it under pressure. I think what they've brought to the race is really worth celebrating because they are also part of enabling that eventual winning performance. So for me to then afterwards just go, oh yeah, he's the winner, the rest are losers. That's the wrong story that we're telling. We can't but is that learn a cultural problem? what went on. Is that a cultural problem within British media? I know we're not separated by that much geographical distance, but how we cover athletes is vastly different. We still celebrate Sonia O'Sullivan as one of our greatest athletes ever, despite not winning an Olympic gold medal. And, you know, I think if you'd done a straw poll at a public and, you know, definitely an anecdotal case or samples group of one here with me, I'd hold Sonia O'Sullivan in as much esteem as Katie Taylor, who has won Olympic gold medals for us. So is that not a, when we say the we dismiss or we diminish are we are we talking about the media are we talking about how other athletes view them are we talking about sporting organizations yeah i think it's it's a really good point that it's a lot of us so certainly the british media but also it's grassroots it's clubs that then hear that and parrot that this sort of who's the loser language you can hear in playgrounds you hear it in local sports clubs and so for me you know hollywood perpetuates these sort of binary myths as well it, it is around us it is around in the language where we we kind of seek to create winners and losers in education at school so I, I think there are this is one of the reasons that I kind of wanted to look at how we've got to this point because it holds us back it doesn't enable people to thrive it, it barely enables the one who comes out on top to thrive so alone everyone else so you know, there are a lot of different ways in which we need to unpick this. The media certainly play a role, but it is amplified elsewhere. And I, my concern with the, I don't even know how to, to label it, but I've seen it. I want to go in, in a different niche. So there's a recent campaign. I don't exactly know which fashion brand that ran this campaign, but it's a very obese woman on the cover of the I think it was a Vogue magazine it was a very obese woman on the cover of the magazine you're, you're talking I'm pulling out arbitrary stats but she's like a 5 foot 6 girl who's 200 plus pounds and we're in such a skewed culture that they are celebrating a woman who is medically and morbidly obese and holding them up as a champion of well, this is good. This should be celebrated. We're all winners in our own unique way. But this is not a good role model. Where there used to be a better version of role models. There used to be a there used to be a reward for somebody who persevered, who excelled in this in spite of hard conditions. But now we're holding everybody up to be a champion, even if that is not the case. That they're not a champion. That they don't have attributes or they don't have behaviors which are worth celebrating and which opposite to what we're celebrating can actually be toxic for future generations. When we change the meaning of what success is, are we looking at potentially creating negative role models for future generations? So I think what that example brings out is this, this other desire that we frame success as something that's really hard to reach, really extreme and you know real sort of outliers. So it's either a, a kind of skinny, uh, waif-like model that's on the front or we go right to the other extreme um, and that then sort of leaves us with this message that most of us you know, you know statistically pretty much all of us come somewhere in the middle of that and we aren't worth being on the front cover we aren't beautiful we aren't okay because we don't stand out because we're not um, you know, at, at that extreme level. And we get to this point where sort of Alan de Botton, the, the philosopher, has written a lot about how we, how, you know, in our society, it's not okay to be average. It's, it's looked down on. You know, it's not okay to have a good life. You have to have an extraordinary life. You have to be Mark Zuckerberg. You have to have done something extraordinary to kind of justify your worth. I think that is problematic. I don't think an athlete, you know, we can celebrate an athlete who does brilliant things, but are they worth more as a human being than an athlete that, or someone who does a sport in a different way? I don't think so. I think we've got things mixed up when we get to that point and we shift identity and self-worth 
uh, as, as being justified by some fairly arbitrary, random, narrow criteria. But I think the I think the collective we is important to define, and it's becoming uh, a, a more fragmented we. Because when we say we, I typically I think we typically meant the mainstream media, and the mainstream media was a mouthpiece for and a representation of what the broader public felt. But now with you know Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we have we can do stratified opinions so by this i mean you know within inside cycling inside the tour de france one of my favorite writers at the moment is guillaume martin uh the cofidus writer and he's moved he has moved through the professional peloton in a way where he's also achieved a master's in philosophy and for me this is someone who i celebrate as okay maybe he's not going to win to Giro d'Italia this year, but he's given a pretty respectable account for himself. And I look at him as quite a well-rounded athlete. So I think when we say we define them as that, we're in danger of you know projecting a very narrow set of largely state-controlled media or you know controlled by two or three individuals. We're in danger of projecting their opinion as everybody's opinion, which I don't necessarily believe to be true. So I think the sort of the obsession, the narrow obsession with how we define winning, it, you know, it, it, the trouble is it is echoed. So it's echoed in, in what's, you know, the stereotypes that are used within sort of not just journalism, but in other kind of media. Uh, and again, it gets echoed though within, say, the, the education system about who are the people who are invited to talk into, you know, assemblies to kids. And, you know, there are lots of different ways at which this threads through and although we and we see these pictures in the media but it, it's present elsewhere so i think it has multiple sources that are perpetuating some of these kind of narrow myths i think it's also sort of even in our language you know we have to sort of check ourselves for how we talk about you know athletes and and you know the the sort of boxes that we put in people and even we sort of briefly talked about that before we kind of be, begun this conversation around you know the this need to define who you are through what you do yeah rather than just you are who you are um and that i think is sort of behind the some of the philosophy that johnny wilkinson has been going through with his sort of focus on i am he's just trying to find out who he is not not what he does but i've got my lost who i am but is the responsibility on sporting institutions to bring the athletes along and educate the athletes and the example i use and one that it, it took me you know selling all my various business interests and pe press and pause on my whole life to realize that for a long time i had lived and i'm gonna throw out a quite a bizarre nautical analogy my life was like a ship and for a long time i only had one compartment in the ship and that was sport so when sports started taking on water the whole ship went down and for me then it was very easy to frame bad sporting experiences as a bad life because i was so single dimensional and then i transitioned from that into business and purely finance so it was easy again for me to define a bad day in work as a bad life so since pressing pause and redefining what i am and saying okay well i have a sporting aspect to my life i have a family aspect i have a spirituality aspect i have a self-mastery aspect Having four or five different areas means I can take water in one area and still not see myself as a shit person and want to go and suck on a shotgun. Totally. I mean, that, that, is, that is a much healthier frame of who we are and, you know, how we evolve. The fact that we don't also stay one thing once we're in one compartment. We can, we can develop others. We can move around the department compartments we can go back we can get back on the ship or we can get back on i'm trying to extend your analogy maybe i'm stretching <laughs> it too far um but uh you know there, there is a lot of research now around this question of identity with athletes and if you if your worth is tied up in a single identity then it, it doesn't help your performance it also doesn't help your mental health with managing certainly you know injuries transition out of sport just enjoyment if you like of having that kind of perspective within which to see a performance, i.e. it's not world-ending, actually, whether you win or lose today. It's super important, of course. It's really significant, but, but there is a perspective. There are other things that happen in the world possibly more important. And so, you know, we, we lose that. And I do think that identity piece is crucial to having a slightly longer-term perspective on success. So it's not just that next race, and I've got to give it all to that, and I just kind of throw myself into that, and that's going to determine who I am and how what my worth is. And actually to have this sense of, well, I'm going to try a few things, and actually what can I bring from here that will help me over here? 
In the work I do now in leadership development, one of the real challenges is often that people have had quite a narrow field of expertise, whether they're a lawyer or an engineer, and then suddenly they're given this sort of cross-functional responsibility for a whole organisation. They have to start thinking about how they're going to collaborate and innovate, and, and nothing has, tra has trained them or prepared them to do that. I actually think within sport, our, our coaches, there's a sort of transition that they used to be these sort of real experts in incredible technical detail, but actually we're, we're realising that we need these people to be in charge of, you know, able to support, you know, character development, person development, so that a, a healthy citizen leaves the sport and goes out and maybe gives back to the sport or maybe goes on to do something completely different. And, and that's really important, the story they leave with, the story they tell. And so it's broadening out these stories so that we can see that success, is, it can look like so many different things. So we can start to tell different stories. And that is about national governing bodies. It's about kind of what, what gets put into the sport, uh, sports media. It's what we choose to consume. You know, definitely you've got more platforms now with social media and, and athletes are trying to tell different stories. Well, I, I think for when you only have one segment, one compartment in your whole life, so it's just sport, the lens you start to view every single decision in your whole life through is a binary lens and i noticed from experience of chatting with world tour guys on the podcast every day it's will this thing i'm thinking about doing say the example i've planned to go to the cinema with my girlfriend tonight so if i was a professional athlete still the lens that i would view that through is is going to the cinema going to make it more likely or going to make it less likely that i will win a bike race and that's the only lens that matters when you're a professional athlete but when you add in professional athletes, family relationships, these four or five different compartments, that question becomes very hard to answer. And I think that means that gives you the permission and the freedom to go to the cinema tonight. And it helps you become a much better rounded person. But I, I think really this boils back to and, and circles back to what is the function of sport? Because we need to pull it back to if the function of sport is to create these ultimate terminator 10 robots i agree that going to the cinema tonight is a bad decision probably but if the function of sport is to produce a rounded athlete at the end of the journey a better person a better citizen it's maybe the right decision and i don't know if we've tightly enough defined what is the function of sport because in places like russia we've seen with the winter olympics it's becoming not becoming it has for a long time been like a geopolitical tool and you know we're maybe arrogant or blind to the fact that we use that for the exact same propaganda means in Ireland, UK, US as Russians do but do you agree that it's the function of sports that we haven't clearly defined? So I think two really important points there and I'm just going to go back to the cinema example because I actually think as well as you're right, it's better for a well-rounded um, person I actually think there's a performance argument too so I think if we we look at success just as the next race. I think if we look at success as the next three years of races, then I think it's a good decision to go to the cinema tonight. So I think we need to stretch the time frame, the time perspective within which we see success. I think we need to take it, rather than this just the, the one next short-term race, to bring it back actually to today. What's gonna to make today a day that's worth living, that's been enriching, that's been a good day? And then we go out beyond that race to actually over my career, what's going to help me to thrive as an athlete to make sure that I can sustain those performances. So I think there is a performance argument in there if it's anything other than only the next race counts. Only in that case is it right to go to the cinema. So I think there are, you know, we, we sometimes overlook, if you like, that for sustainable performance, we, we should be doing some things differently. Just coming on to the purpose piece, I think this is so important that we lose that bigger purpose of sport. If we cheat on the way to winning, if we abuse athletes, if we leave damaged athletes coming out of sport, then what have we done? We've, we've really diminished the opportunity for sport to be about showing what's possible, that we can have you know, an expansion of human possibility and human achievement. We've actually sort of diminished it. We've discouraged the next generation. The people watching don't want to watch, they're not connected. We've lost the opportunity to bring a community together to share in the joy of, sh of seeing what a human being can do and take to the next level. So on so many levels we miss out and we probably also miss out in terms of the, the longevity of that particular career 
that's been you know blighted by whatever the the kind of short-term costs and damage that's been done so I absolutely agree we should be thinking why do we have sport some of the work I do in schools is about thinking are we are we just here for the league cup this year or actually do we care about whether these children are still playing sport in 10 years time Okay, here's the deal. I have a product I want to talk to you about. It's called Manscaped and it's today's show sponsor. This is an essential tool for any cyclist right now who's listening to this show. Manscaped is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Their products are precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. There's two huge problems, and these are reoccurring problems we have with cycling. We get saddle sores and we pick up infections after we've had road rash because of poor leg grooming. I've had both these and they can take a giant of a man down in his prime, but both these are the result of poor grooming, not shaving your man bits and not shaving your legs properly. I've had a very incomplete set of solutions up to now. I've been using Vite hair removal cream. I've been using shaving foam, disposable razors and electric razors. It's been a bloodbath, honestly, it hasn't been pretty. But Manscaped's performance package, it's the ultimate men's hygiene bundle. Join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped and I've got an exclusive offer for you. 20% off Manscaped plus free worldwide shipping when you use the code ROADMAN over at manscaped.com. So let me think, if my maths is correct on that, that is about 8 million balls. When it shows up, it shows up in this insanely striking presentation box. It's an amazing gift. So get it for yourself as a reward for your hard training. Get it for your teammate's birthday. Get it for your dad as a present. Or get it for your mother-in-law. Basically get it for anyone who has hair on them. It's a perfect gift. So get 20% off over on manscaped.com plus free shipping when you use the promo code ROADMAN at checkout. Back to the show. Well, I think once we define like what is that function of sport, I'm wondering is there a line between... I think my dad is still uh, heavily involved, and I've mentioned it a number of times in the podcast. He's the chairman of the local soccer team. And for him, he's approaching 70 years of age. And I say to him all the time, like, why do you bother? Like, at, at your age, like, you're going up on a Tuesday night and you're putting nets up in the local park and you're making no money from this. And his argument is always, well, if I can change the course of one person's week, I can potentially change the course of their year. I can potentially change the course of their life. And for me, he's like, I'm not looking to make premiership footballers out of these guys, but if I can instill a bit of discipline in somebody and because of that, they become a better citizen, as Aristotle would say, uh, that's all the validation or gratitude he needs. And that's his motivation. But I wonder at some arbitrary place on the journey from amateur sport to top performance sport, is there a line in the sand where we say, no, we actually no longer care about athlete development. At this point, we're willing to put athletes into toxic workplaces. At this point, we're willing to let female athletes be sexually harassed by coaches, be in inappropriate situations, let Bradley Wiggins undergo alleged horrific childhood trauma, all in the pursuit of this perfect machine. So... uh Clearly, with what our society's values, one hope one hopes not. But you're right. We look, we're definitely far too far down that path than I'm comfortable with, uh, and that I think any of us should be comfortable with. M- my problem is that, as as well as it not being morally the right thing to do, it it just isn't good for performance either. Uh, an environment of fear. You know, we see with these Russian athletes, they don't do more than one Olympics. They're sort of tossed aside. The next one comes in. Um, you know, is, is, is that really moving things on? They also tend to be in some of those sports where, um, you know, it's quite a narrow area sometimes where, say, in the, in the gymnastics and the ice skating, where, okay, maybe there is a bit of a performance advantage by, you know, sort of having these slightly, whatever the, the physical advantages are of being a very young child that's that's been sort of forced to do this. But it's really limiting, I think, at some point, the, um, you know, where that sport goes, who comes into that sport, the health of the sport, the future generations of that sport. Uh, and so at some point, I think it becomes performance limiting. So I don't even think there are good performance arguments for it. And I also just, just, think, just why, to, inter- just to why interject and run we... with that point, Kat, yeah. it's like, 
And I, I would like to agree with you there, but I'm, I'm not sure that's the reality because we see, and Bradley Wiggins, and I know you've written about this, Bradley Wiggins uh, experienced shocking trauma, a deeply unhappy man all through his career. Yes, I don't have the stats on how many Olympic goals he's won. I think he's won four or five Olympic gold medals. He's famously a million people out in London to win the Olympic time trial Tour de France champion. The ends have, not in my eyes, but I'm wondering in the British Cycling Federation, have the ends justified the means? I don't, I don't think that people are looking at that going, yeah, let, let, let's do more of that, or I want my child to to go into that it'll be worth it for the olympic medals i, I think that's quite hard to th- feel that that's actually that his case is going to increase the likelihood of it i think it also shows that um if we if we don't really think about what the the story behind the medal is then we start to undermine the value of the medal so when we've got athletes who are saying i you know the gymnast i'd rather give my medal back and change the experience then is that really such a great, you know, uh, such a wonderful thing to be aiming for? Actually, don't we want to restore the value of that medal by how it's won being really important? We know that doping and cheating isn't isn't okay, so we we're clearly saying that some things matter. And okay, well, we don't want that to be part of the medal, so we'll take that bit out of the story. So I think we need to kind of think more about what are these, um, so, you know, what what the sort of you know n- not accept it's not acceptable. It doesn't count as success when this has been part of it. And then we broaden, if you like, the concept of the story beyond one moment in time crossing the line and sitting on a podium. We start to look at what's gone before. We start to look at what's come after that. And why can't we put as much emphasis into our environments in exploring what might the performance gains be of a, of a workplace or a sports environment that is one where we're thriving, where we're flourishing, where we're supported and challenged. Why can't we actually sort of put as much energy into that to see what's possible? I, one of the most powerful moments I've had on the podcast, and when I read the Bradley Wiggins story, I couldn't help think of the exact same point that you just made. We have, as a society, said some conduct in the pursuit of an Olympic gold medal. It's unacceptable. We draw a hard line in the sand that we say, if you doped, you are not the legitimate winner of this. You need to give it back. So I had Tyler Hamilton on the podcast who was wrote for US Post, was heavily involved in the Lance Armstrong trial. And in one of the best moments I've had on the podcast, Tyler said, nearly breaking down in tears, he said the proudest moment of his career and it meant so much more to him handing back his Olympic gold medal than it ever meant winning that Olympic gold medal. Because for him, this was... I've heard sports psychologists talking about, you know, no matter what troubles you've had on your on in your life, wipe your feet as you're getting onto the plane because that'll wipe away all these troubles and now you can make this trip fresh. I thought about Tyler there and I thought at that moment he was wiping his feet getting onto the plane. He was handing back that Olympic medal and saying, I'm no longer a part of that culture. I don't endorse that culture and I don't want the fruits of that labor. I wondered the same when I read the Bradley Wiggins stuff was there a part of him thinking I should hand this medal back because this system that's created this medal is not something we should celebrate and because of the success of British cycling worldwide we have smaller nations like Ireland who are you know they're in a head spin and I've I've sat in at meetings and I've been on squads and Ireland is trying to be a mini Great Britain they're looking at the Great Britain model they're only seeing the fruits of it and they're seeing none of the bad stuff and they're creating a toxic environment that's really hurting good athletes at the moment we're getting none of the success but all of the downside oh that sounds dreadful uh i I think the tyler hamilton story is so so powerful and what does it show us it shows us that at the end we have to think about what has a lasting value what lasts beyond the medal what's most important you know the medals Someone else wins the next one. They go in the draw. You know, the things that people talk about when we get together, we don't, we don't talk about medals, do we? We talk about stories, moments, experiences. And I think we should be much clearer about, as uh, sporting institutions, that's what we're creating. What sort of stories do we want to create that are around human possibility? And so, of course, they, the medals will be a part of that. But they are not the only part, and they will probably not be the most lasting part either. At the moment, are they the part that inspire the next generation? 
Well, not if you're abused along the way. Who's looking at gymnastics going, yeah, well, I really want to do that. What parent wants point. to take their child <laughs> to gymnastics now? And, and I know people within my own sport who've walked away and gone, do you know what? Uh, I thought I wanted it, but not that much. I've got some, some values here. I, I myself felt totally torn and quite naive and too late in sort of thinking, yeah, well, this is just what's required to be an Olympian to sort of put up with absolutely everything, to not have a voice, to, you know, ex accept this sort of you're diminished according to your performance, if you like, if you haven't performed, you're worthless. You know, I thought, well, oh, that's just the currency of this environment. I've got to learn that. It took me a while to really challenge that and realise that I didn't need to be the way. It probably wasn't the best way either, certainly not for me. Um, and that actually, you know, that, that we should be searching for, for kind of different ways to do things. And I wonder, we don't measure the opportunity cost, if you like, of the, the good athletes who go, no, I've got values and I'm not doing that. And so actually, we, you know, are we attracting, in fact, high performance athletes who are insecure, not willing to challenge the system, um, perhaps, you know, insecure enough to feel, oh, well, maybe I deserve this or this is, you know, this is, this is what, what, what should happen. Um, I wonder how many people we actually lose out of high performance sport who might bring more of that integrity that Tyler Hamilton was so desperate to retain because that actually is what was the most powerful thing, the most powerful value that could come from his sporting experience. I was on a podcast uh, recently as a guest on the other side of the microphone and they were talking about Peter Sagan, you know, three-time world champion, one of the iconic names, characters and figures in our sport over the last decade. And the host said, Peter Sagan, the three-time world champion who's a flop. And he expanded on it by talking about, yeah, he's kind of, you know, he had his limited success for a period of time and then he never really pushed through on that promise. You know, we all talked about him maybe going on to be the next Eddie Merckx and being this next sensation. And I was troubled by it and I sat with the comments afterwards for quite a while and I was out riding and I was thinking about it. Isn't it just how we view sport? It's just so single dimensional. It's, it's true, it's telescope where we just rate Peter Sagan's wort on his performance that there isn't anything else going on in Peter Sagan's life or there's no other way he could be happy only winning bike races like Peter Sagan I, I don't know Peter you know I'd love to have him on the podcast but there's a very real scenario where he's looking back and going hey I'm getting a million pounds you know a year I've all these endorsements I'm a good looking lad I'm single there's so much more to life than just winning bike races and putting every single part of my being into winning bike races maybe i'll take this money and maybe i'll travel on the weekends i'm off and i won't train maybe i'll learn a language on the side maybe i'll go party every second weekend with my friends maybe i'll start a non-profit on the side and give some of my energy to that and we view that as a failure we viewed sagan as a quote-unquote flop because of this narrow lens Agree. And so we've got judgment coming in here, haven't we? Uh, judgment rather than curiosity. How interesting. He had all this potential. What's going on? What can we learn from this? Yeah. What an interesting kind of character. Um, is this the end of the journey? What, where might this go? I mean, look at how Gareth Southgate turned his penalty loss, you know, into this leading learning point that's made him such an effective and inspirational sports leader who thinks about sport differently it made him but okay that was the moment where he was a, a flop arguably so yeah, it's just such a narrow lens isn't it i would just want to be more curious to go what does that look like through his eyes of course it's more complex than that and actually do you know through life who who doesn't have moments where they flop so why should we sort of somehow suggest that that is also makes him of less value um, that's just part of life, isn't it? I know you're huge on cultural change. And I had a podcast guest on recently, John Martini, And he spoke to me one sentence, which I thought is just so instructive to so much of our audience and so many of my clients. He said, define your values, like write your values down and then go and audit your behavior based on these values. So literally pull up and not in some uh, you know, vague sense, like literally pull up your Google calendar and show me how you allocate your time across the week. So you're telling me you're somebody who values a connection with your family. How much time did you spend with your family this week? You're telling me you're somebody who values the outdoor life. How much time did you spend in the outdoors this week? Is this how we start cultural change within sporting organizations? Because people talk about they value uh, inclusive 
workplace environments. They talk about valuing, you know, all the buzzwords that we get in culture at the moment, uh, diversity, inclusion. But are we seeing that in actions? Yeah, totally. I mean, I often sort of say that to to organisations, what's really important to you or what what, what do you think an effective team looks like? And they give me all that, all, you know, support and challenge and, um, you know, all of those sorts of behaviours. And I go, right, well, how well are you doing on those counts and how do you develop those and how much are you investing in those and how much are you recognising those? And then it all falls away. So, yes, there's a superficiality for sure and the word values often, you know, is seen as something, a, a set of words on a website and that is meaningless. Um, and I think there's a huge opportunity for these conversations to be a fundamental part of every athlete's life. And I mean that not just in high performance sport, but how we encounter sport. I mean, I love actually that the martial arts bring much more of a philosophy, much more of a way of behaving, whether you're a novice or a master, you show that respect from the beginning. And, and, and that sort of element, I think, has become missing. It was meant to be there with Olympism, but it, it totally got lost along the way. Uh, and I think the same for our workplaces to put these things first rather than last. But of course, we need to be now kind of measuring them, valuing them, recognizing them. If it actually doesn't count, the values on the website, if I don't keep them, and actually, you know, doing those things could take me away from what gets recognized in the organization, then I'm not going to do them. So we need to be recognizing, rewarding these behaviors. What's the biggest obstacle to cultural change at the moment? Oh, that's a question, isn't it? There are different things that get in the way. Um, I mean, at one level, it's our lifestyle of things are very short term and this sort of short term, too busy, overwhelmed means we don't take, we don't stop back and think, step back and think about what really matters. So there's a lifestyle piece, short termism is one huge block, I think, to cultural is that change. A, is that a, just to address each point as as we go, because I'll forget them mm. <laughs> at the end. On the, the short-term one, is that a is it a security issue around, you know, specifically dealing with Olympics? I was in the last Olympic cycle. I was piloting a, a tandem for a buddy of mine who's visually impaired. Uh, we ended up not riding because of that one-year postponement of the Games. But so I was in this cycle, and it's dominated by thoughts of hitting targets hitting kpis hitting times for selection if you don't hit the time if you don't hit the criteria you're not going to get the funding and if you drop out of the funding model sure you may as well retire so when we're caught in this short-term paradigm does it make it very difficult to then have long-term values or impossible yes, even? absolutely yeah uh i i think we have to not have short-term metrics determining everything uh, if it is that short-term pacing, and that's what happens. Coaches who have values go, well, I can't, I don't want to sacrifice my values, so I'm going to leave. And then other yeah. coaches that perhaps aren't so strong on that will go, well, okay, well, I'll just have to curb them and, and do what's required. Otherwise, I won't have a job next year. So that sort of short-term targets piece is a, is a big part of it. Uh, what we incentivize, what we reward. So again, the coach, I'm only rewarding you for the medals. I'm not going to reward you if you treat your athletes well. You know, of course, it's not all coaches by any means. There are many brilliant coaches out there, but there are also many brilliant coaches who left who go, do you know what, that's not good enough. Actually, it's all about how I treat the athlete. Uh, and that's the way in which we should be winning medals. I think there's a lack of a vision of what sport could be beyond medals. So this sense of, OK, we thought it was all about medals. Now we've caused a lot of damage. We didn't really mean to cause along the way. So let's try and do less damage but we don't necessarily have a vision of what sport could be. This is one of the things that I love the work I do supporting um, the True Athlete Project, which is a lovely nonprofit that runs mentoring programs for young athletes, matching across sports, um, you know, really experienced athletes with, with kind of up and coming sports scholars or young athletes to, and, and puts a framework around it. So I think it's not, we still want to pursue excellence, but we want a framework about the way we do it and they talk about, yes, what are your values? Give time and space to that. Developing the identity beyond your sport. Understanding how to be mindful, you know, really bringing mindfulness into training and performance. So we're mindful of who we are, not just as a sort of concentration technique, but a kind of, you know, mindful citizens, if you like, in our position and the platform we have. Thinking about then that community of responsibility with that platform, that, you know, what, what are the things we want to represent that people will look at us for as role models beyond just wearing a, a brand of kit. 
and to be connected with the environment, with that bigger world in, in which we're a part. And I love the work they do of trying to create, if you like, this meaning, this wrap of meaning around the pursuit of excellence to help us have a vision of what a sporting environment could be within which the medals are a part, but they're a part of a, a wider circle in which there are many other things that you will take from sport and gain and share and develop and they'll probably outlast the medals too. It's such an amazing point because I was chatting recently with a buddy of mine who's an entrepreneur and he's an ex-professional cyclist and we were talking about hiring ex-professional cyclists and he was like, I would never hire an ex-professional cyclist. And we were chatting about why and we were chatting about all the good qualities they have, you know, undoubtedly to get to the level of professional cyclists, you know, the word before cycling, there's professional. There's such a level of professionalism. There's a level of timekeeping. There's a level of diligence with your diet of showing up every day and pushing through uncomfortable situations, application to the craft. These are all, you know, I coach and I mentor some guys who run some of the biggest companies in the world. And these are all the traits that these guys have. And then you look at these athletes and you say, well, why would you not hire these people? They have all the traits of winners. And he said to me one such powerful phrase. He said, by the time they come out of sport, they're broken. And I was like, how sad is that? That they're, they have all these amazing qualities, but sport is just, and cycling in particular, has just broken them to the point that they've almost given up on life. It's like, I'm done. It is so sad. And you know, it reminds me of a, a, the sports psychologist who sort of really helped me in my third Olympics. I had two where I, that had broken me. I came seventh and I came ninth. And I felt destroyed. This was supposed to prove who I was. And I'd utterly failed and had utterly wrapped my identity up with the result. As I started to sort of pick myself up, take a, took a year out, potentially retire, but start to think about things different, uh, in a different way, start to understand more about the importance of culture, about the psychology of thinking through things through a different lens. And when I went back to have another go, the sports psychologist said to me, what are the things that you're going to gain if you don't win a medal at this third Olympics? And initially I was like, oh my goodness, you can't ask that. That's, you know, that don't jinx me. Um, but it was such a brilliant question because it unlocked all the wonderful value I was going to get from, again, trying to explore how fast I could make a boat go backwards, you know, on a lake, uh, you know, at the World Championships of the Olympics, but training along the way. But it also unlocked all those things that I would take with me from sport afterwards. And as I developed those things, you know, the, the mindset, you know, avoiding the burnout I'd had from before, enjoying it, having really much more meaningful relationships with the people that I was training with and, and learning with and coached by, uh, you know, thinking about you know, looking after myself and recovering so I could get to the end of this journey, thinking about how to really work effectively as a team. These things, as I invested in those and valued those, what did they do? They drove my performance. That mean I, that mean I did end up in the podium, but I also had things when I got off the podium to take with me. Kat, it's an absolutely fascinating chat. I think a lot of time on podcasts, guests come on and I try and get to the bottom and give them answers. But I think a big takeaway for listeners today is not actually an answer, it's a question. And it's a question you pose, which I've circled here in my notes. It's to think about what sport could be, because I think that's such a powerful takeaway from this podcast. Thank you very much for your time. And I'm going to link up Kat's book, all her amazing work in the show notes. So thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much. Loved it too. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. There is painstaking effort that goes into research, recording, scheduling and production of this show six days a week. Now I am actually asking for something in return. Come on now, folks, you owe me this. Right after I stop talking today, can you please take out your phone and do two things for me? Firstly, can you subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to the podcast? And secondly, leave a review of the show. These two simple tasks make it so much easier for me to get to the show into the ears of people who need to hear it. Come on, it's the least you owe me after all the hustle I've put into bringing this show. So all I ask is you do it now before you forget and it slips your mind. Thank you very, very much, Roadman.